The financial services game is changing and banking as a service is leading the charge. We've interviewed some of the industry's biggest change makers in our brand new six-part documentary video series, Decoding Banking as a Service, which has just launched on our YouTube channel. Jump inside the minds of the biggest names in the space and find out why Baz is so hot right now, and your business could indeed reap the benefits. To watch the current episodes and get instant updates when new ones are released, head to bit.ly forward slash decoding baz that's bitly decoding b-a-a-s Alrighty, let's start the show Welcome to episode 479 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm today joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Adam Davis. How are you doing, Adam? <laughs> uh, finding out I'm much more of a slob in lockdown two than I was in lockdown one. My really? uh, Well, my attention to detail on my desk, my cleansiness has just gone like out of the window. Uh, I, can't be, I can't be bothered for this lockdown. So it's yep. just like any rules apply. Indeed. Well, for international listeners, yes, the UK is in lockdown too. Uh, we were briefly coming back out of that, and now we're back into it again. So it's it's like the uh, you put your left leg in, your left leg out, and all that kind of good <laughs> stuff at the moment. Um, of course, thank goodness um, Adam and I are not alone for, for this kind of twaddle. Um, we are joined by some amazing guests to get into the fintech goodness. Um, first up, making a fintech insider news debut, we have Babs Okatunde. Uh, welcome to the show, Babs. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm not too bad, man. How was the pronunciation? You know, like I had a couple of goes at that. Yeah, you you got it completely wrong, but but it's okay. But you got Babs right, which is which is good. Single syllables, man. I'm I'm for this. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, joining him is Rune Garborg, who's the CEO over at Vips. How are you doing, Rune? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me here today. I really oh, appreciate no, we're that. very, very glad to have you. And uh, last but by no means least is making a welcome return, Sharon Kamathi, who is editor at Fintech Futures. Welcome back to the show, Sharon. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks so much for having me. But yes, I am okay. It's lockdown to electric boogaloo and I'm okay with it, you know, especially after that Deutsche Bank thing that, that was going around yesterday with the report of work from home, pay 5% tax. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, if you didn't see this, we, it's not one of the stories we're going to be covering. But apparently, yes, there were, there's rumors of more tax if you work from home. Let's hope that doesn't happen for all of, them, all of us, uh, especially when we're, we're trying to do the right thing for the economy. But there is just so much fintech news, so I'm going to have to move it to us. And the first story this week, my goodness, it's a whopper. Um, this is WhatsApp apparently have gotten approval for payments in India. Uh, the story was covered by Bloomberg, but just about every other outlet India has now allowed Facebook Inc. to start operating WhatsApp payments in India, the world's biggest open technology market. They've been testing WhatsApp payments in India for years, but the regulatory hurdles have kept the app's pilot project to a very small number of users. Following this approval, WhatsApp Pay can go live using the homegrown multibank Unified Payments Interface, or UPI. And it can gradually expand its UPI base, starting with as many as 20 million users. India is, of course, WhatsApp's largest market and an extremely important country for Facebook, which is looking for areas to add new organic users as more lucrative markets like the US and Europe become saturated. Sharon, what are your thoughts here? Oh, I've got two main points that I was thinking about. So the first is to do with identity verification. Mm. Um, so I was talking to TMT, who's the mobile phone number uh, verifier, and they do it for a bunch of um, financial institutions. And their main concern about this from hearing about se several different people from the regulatory um, environment, that their concern is who are you sending the money to and how can you verify that that is who they are saying they are? Um, and I guess that they were wondering, especially with it being such a largely populous country, um, whether or not that's something that the regulator took into consideration as well when making this decision. I know in Brazil, they certainly are scratching their heads about how that's going to go down. Um, so they've put theirs on pause for the moment, and it still is on pause, um, last I checked. So yeah, that's not looking so great verification-wise. And then the second point um, is that it might actually ramp up competition um, in terms of the payment uh, sector in this space. So although you know loads of people are you know using the the UPI, 
uh, which came into place um, after the whole uh, immediate payment services, the IMPS that was there in 2010, uh, it seems like they might now start using, you know, more things like Google Pay and Phone P, and maybe they might be smaller ones that come up too, because it's such a big country to tap into. So yeah, that's what I, I was thinking about those two things and how to juggle that. It's an unbelievable market, isn't it, Sharon? I think great points, both of them. Uh, Rune, you know a little bit about payments um, and and kind of some of the challenges Sharon was talking there about how do I know my customer? Uh, this is a problem that's been solved elsewhere, though. Yes, but I, I really think this is an interesting case because it's the infrastructure is uh, impressive. Uh, and what they're actually doing here is to to create a field where everybody is competing uh, on level terms. And uh, I'm, I'm so um, excited uh, by the competition between Pay2M, the Alipay wallet, uh, against uh, the American alternatives from, from Facebook, Google, and, and so on. So uh, it's, it's going to be excited uh, to see who is going to impress the customer the most, who is going to, yeah. Rune, I think that's such a great point. Um, you cannot um, separate the geopolitics from this stuff where you've got um, sort of Ali and Tencent really wanting to own payments coming in from China. But of course, the geopolitics of India-China relations are, are not particularly strong. So by owning the infrastructure and creating that sort of open competition that the regulator has more control of, it, the winner here for me is India. Like that's super exciting. Um Babs, I'm interested in your thoughts for consumers and small businesses. Real-time payments are super important. And mobile apps are super important. What are your thoughts as you look at this story? Um, so I think it's, for especially for emerging market, um, it's something that potentially can truly change the game. Um, and because, you know, a lot of people um, and, a lot of, and a lot of small businesses don't necessarily have the temperament to actually operate a proper bank account. Um, if the KYC element can sort of be managed, I think it's 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 a huge win for for small businesses because you know they're already in in Nigeria, for example. You know, we call them social media businesses. People are already transacting businesses on you know WhatsApp um on 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 instagram and to give you some perspective you know we have about a hundred million businesses in nigeria only three million of them are registered at the sort of company's house equivalent um and and a lot of those don't actually operate um sort of business bank accounts so with 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 whatsapp if you're already transact, you know, discussing, negotiating, and you're able to just conclude sort of the transaction, um, it's potentially exponential, um, especially for emerging markets. I think it's a big, big opportunity. Indeed. I, I think that emerging markets thing is is huge. And, and WhatsApp does have lots of tools for small businesses that they've started to roll out in certain markets, Adam. I'm I'm interested in your views either on the regs or, um, or on, the, on the broader perspective here. I mean, it's not—it's not the smallest friends and family uh, beta I've, I've ever heard. Just the cool twenty million. Tw just the cool twenty million. Uh, I'd be falling off my chair if I was presented with that challenge. Um, I mean, it is amazing that the feat of engineering. I know, uh, Rune, you mentioned the infrastructure piece of this, um, but I do think the engineering to get out ten versions of this in India. So they've actually um, they've they've charted sort of the, the ten different uh, language types in India uh, or variations of uh, the regional languages, and they've built a WhatsApp um, and WhatsApp Pay functionality. For each, which I think is really incredible. It's supported by 140 banks, which is, again, a pretty incredible feed. It means that from a, uh, I suppose, from a banking perspective, they've got the buy-in, if you like, um, which I'm assuming came, you know, direct from the central bank once they approve this. Um, but I think what an, an interesting thing, uh, and certainly just going back to what we talked about geopolitics and the competition in the market, is that uh, the National Payments Corporation of India has imposed a 30% cap on volume for all third-party payment providers on its platform. I think that's really interesting because it shows that one cannot amass a monopoly, if you like. So as much as there is going to be a geopolitical war, um, it can only go up to 30%, um, you know, a very, a very quantitative way of doing it. But then on the flip side, obviously, the country is so vast and so big that that 30% is still, you know, an enormous share of the market and, and will, you know, uh, transpose to an enormous amount of revenue. 
And, and I think, Adam, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I mentioned briefly that India could be the winner here, but in the, I think Rune talked about the importance of UPI and the infrastructure that India has built and the, the optionality that that state now has, A, to create financial inclusion, but B, to prevent and guard against monopolies. It's, it's kind of interesting. And I think, Sharon, you mentioned uh, Google Pay, which is massive, Walmart's phone P, um, and many, many others. Uh, Sharon, as, as you look at that, do you think that this could be a, a needle mover for Facebook as, as they are quite saturated in the US and Europe? And you know, advertising revenues have done well for them in the US, maybe less so in Europe, but could payments revenues be a real game changer for them? I think potentially, although the one thing that they are struggling with, which again, I'll go back to TMT and their comments about it, was their research on it. And so they mentioned that about 50% of users of Facebook are not verified. So you have no idea of telling who is who. So that's another thing. Unless they clean that up, unless they start sifting through accounts and people have to be like who they say they are, then that might be legitimate. Then they can start building up from having, you know, complied with good regulations, shown that, you know, their client base is actually who they are. And then that way they can maybe start making a bit more money in this. But I don't know. I feel like that sort of exercise will take a, a long time. I mean, clearing all that up, it's, it's bad enough doing it with spreadsheets, let alone doing it with profiles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Facebook know. profiles. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Rin, do you think? What do you think this means for the banks of India? Because you know, the, uh, India's uh, the India stack is to me one of the most impressive things to, that I've seen in in financial services and indeed country level open source software development. And now there's um, Oken coming, which is the open source lending sort of alternative. It's very different to what we've seen with open banking and APIs elsewhere in the world. It is. And what I think is interesting is to see how modern their thinking is uh, about this. And, and it, it, I think a lot of countries would have actually wanted the same infrastructure that we see the banks are providing uh, together. And I think it's the, the big question here is if the banks are settling with creating the infrastructure or do they also want to have the interface with the customers so far it looks like they are actually giving the interface to third parties like whatsapp google and so on and but but i'm 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 curious to see how that's going to develop are they going to compete uh, in uh, the customer uh, interface or are they just going to be the rail that's uh, that's uh, that's a big question well, and indeed, like as the banks really are left with having a balance sheet and the ability, therefore, to lend. But there are other types of lenders in the market. There's an open source rail that allows you to lend. So, how do, are they playing the wrong game by trying to compete for the being the phone app and by being the screen that the customer is looking at? And actually, is there another game that that they now need to play in India with with the realities of RR and uh, UPI and Oken and everything that sits in that? stack how do you position yourself to do what you're great at um but not be commoditized i think it's an interesting question room yeah i i really do and i'm uh, I, i'm not sure if they've really decided yet or uh if they are going to compete against the third parties uh big brands at what as whatsapp and google mm. but i, I think when you're to talking about other products other financial products the competition is going to be extremely high if they are not a part of the consumer interface, also indeed, in and of course I, this I, follows um, Facebook's investment in Reliance Geo, um, and to me that feels like this is uh, more of an India win than a Facebook win. It feels like India got it Facebook where they needed them to be, and then was able to to kind of execute. And that's not to slur at anybody who's um, the engineering feats that Adam talks about. You know, it's it's phenomenal what they've been able to achieve. But Facebook's really been trying to get payments done for eight, nine, 10, 11 years, and hasn't really gotten it done until India got it done for them. So um, let's see, maybe this creates momentum and maybe it's good for consumers and businesses, as, as Babs said. And speaking of Babs, this story is probably near and dear to your heart. Um, so a uh, story on TechCrunch, CUDA raises $10 million to be the mobile first challenger bank for Africa. 
Kuda, a startup out of Nigeria that operates the popular mobile-first challenger bank for consumers and soon small businesses, is announcing that it's raised $10 million, the biggest ever seed round to be raised in Africa. Their aim is to bank every African on the planet, and so far they've gained 300,000 customers since launching in September of 2019, and on average process over $500 million worth of transactions each month. Kud has obtained a microfinance banking license from the Central Bank of Nigeria and have built their own core banking services in-house so they own the full stack, including managing payments, transfers, uh, issuing debit cards in partners with Visa and MasterCard. So, Babs, uh, can you tell us more? Uh, what's the story behind uh, behind Kuda and, and then the funding? Yeah, um, so, you know, where I come from... Um, Nigeria, which you may not be able to guess from my accent, because um, I was born in England, grew up in England. Um, but you know, financial services is super, super expensive. Um, you know, it's not a surprise that half of the world's sort of unbanked um, or underbanked are in Africa, um, and Nigeria is a huge, you know, economy in Africa. So. In essence, what we've just tried to do is come up with a product that um, makes it accessible for consumers and affordable for consumers. So we're the first free bank um, in Nigeria, um, probably in Africa as well, but you know, at the risk of um, getting it wrong, but I'm not aware of any sort of other bank that doesn't charge um, in, in, on, the, on the African continent. Um, so yeah, we... we we started last year. Um, we we had a lot of you know a lot of traction. Obviously, everybody likes something that's free, um, you know, and 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 actually it it worked. Thank goodness, you know, the people were able to open accounts relatively easily um, within a couple of minutes. Um, doing transfers, we're connected directly to the switch. We also managed to connect to some of the biggest banks as well directly so a lot of times we actually don't have to go through the switch um i mean those ha that has its limitations with things like sort of um taking positions in different financial institutions but but generally um we're actually able to transfer money um at no cost to us so the big plan is for us to also be able to offer credit to our own customers um, so the idea is you have this really sort of amazing current account where you can save, you can do budgeting, you can do lots of things, and then you can also get instant credit, um, which is a great need um, in emerging market. And the good thing is you can actually make money from credit in emerging market because you know there's enough margin, um, even though it's a risky asset class, there's enough margin to generate income and, and to actually monetize. And because we're quite sort of greedy and in, in, in our quest to sort of um, dominate, we also realized that we had a lot of requests from Nigerians outside of Nigeria trying to open Kuda bank accounts. So we'd, we've decided to um, set up operations um, first in the United Kingdom, and that's simply to take advantage of the um, remittance corridor. So we're able to offer them an actual um, sort of maybe not a bank account, um, we'll probably do an EMI, EMI license, but a bank-like product which they can easily send money um, home. It will be instant. It will be free. Um, yeah, and, and it's just very seamless. Um, and it just seems to have a lot of appeal. Um, and, and, and the funding will definitely, you know, help us, you know, start that process um, and get in sort of um, best talent, best in class talent, um, and do a little bit of marketing as well. Um, it's phenomenal. Um, Babs, um, from all of us, I think, awesome. Well done. And talk about timing. This is just after the Paystack acquisition by Stripe, um, InterSwitch hitting nearly a billion dollars. Um, you guys have timed it super well. And I think about Newbank, who you know, in Brazil has done really well because there's net interest margin to be made there versus the the neobanks or the challenger banks in other countries where it's, it's just harder to make money in the traditional banking business model. But you guys built your own stack. Like, what was the rationale behind that? Was there nothing off the shelf that worked for you guys or you just could? Um, I think a little bit of both. Um, you know, my co-founder and CTO is a bit of a genius. So, you know, what we found is 
it was limiting. There was nothing really sort of made for what we wanted to do. And then, you know, a lot of times, and we actually outsourced to begin with. And a lot of times, you know, the biggest challenge was um, sort of after sales. So when we had customer issues, we would have to go to the vendor first. And, you know, it just, you know, became when the vendor had a chance you know, to, to resolve our issue. Um, and, you know, and customer service is a big, big part of sort of the whole sort of philosophy of what we're, what we're looking to build. Um, and not only does it just make the experience better, um, it also cements trust, which is sort of one of the big things um, when it comes to, you know, money and financial services, even though there's a big market or there are big platforms and whatnot. If you don't have that trust, because this is money, if you don't have that trust, you know, people won't use it. Um, Especially as a new brand, Babs, right? Like as, as somebody that people haven't heard of, you've really got to establish that and gain it quickly. And I think there's something super interesting about uh, the fact that uh, the vendors were taking their time. I think about a lot of the big banks and customer service is one of their biggest costs and dealing with vendors is one of their big challenges. And actually knowing how you've done it, it's often cheaper and faster to start again and do it yourself and just do it in the modern modern infrastructure. Um, I'm going to uh, see if um, just uh, Rune, did you have any thoughts on this story or, or any questions for Babs? Um, I, I just want to throw it around the, the rest of the guests while we're here. I think it's so imp- impressive to hear about that story. And uh, uh, obviously the the way you are making it cost effective, but also how you're actually creating this brand in, in such a short time. Could you tell me how uh, a little more about how you actually created the brand and made it this huge success in this short while? Um, yeah, I mean, I wish I could take credit for sort of the brand, but, you know, I'm married to somebody that is probably the best brand manager I know. Um, so my wife actually, um, she was very instrumental. She was our first um, acting chief marketing officer. But, you know, the way we did it was just really, and it's simple, was really to just carry our customers along. So, you know, CUDA is not, the team is not sort of the people that work in CUDA. The team is, you know, CUDA and its customers. So everything we do, you know, we carry the customers along and they actually promote the brand, you know, they're, they're our loudest supporters, you know, they're telling everybody, um, referrals are huge for us, um, in terms of, you know, how we're acquiring customers, but these are non-paid referrals. These are people that willingly, you know, um, promote the product. And, and I think if you're able to just, you know, have good product market fit, you know, it works, it's needed, um, naturally, organically, you will get a lot of sort of customers that come through there. And, and that's kind of the strongest, I think, sort of brand, you know, recognition that you can have. What, what's crazy to me about that, Babs, is the amount of um, things I've seen, big strategy packs in which they talk about all the features the app's going to have and how those features are going to drive loyalty and, and customer brand advocacy, when a lot of it's not about what features you have, but it's about how you react around the customer and how you're able to keep your brand promise and, and how you actually execute. Um, and there is just something there that feels like it, it's almost feel. You know it when you've got it. And what that um, viral adoption does for um, customer acquisition costs is just out of this world and until you've got that flywheel going it's it's very hard to feel what it's like to to, to be inside one of those flywheels so i think it's super impressive you guys have, have gotten all that done um just before we move on from this one i wondered if um adam or sharon you had any any comments you wanted to make before we before we move to the next story okay well i was going to say as a, a fellow person from the african diaspora it's very impressive well done um we had kenya because i'm kenyan by the way um, so we had M-Pesa and that really took off and that was awesome to see. And it's really great that we're also seeing perhaps an equivalent with the Challenger Bank here, Kuda Bank, that's doing the business. So well done. And I remember speaking to you a couple of months ago and you were talking about how it was about face-to-face communication with the customer because that's how it's usually like in some of these African villages. Like I definitely know that for, for sure. If I would get an account and I recommend it to either my aunts or uncles or grandparents even, if I walk them through, they're going to love it and they're going to recommend it to friends themselves. So it's it's a pretty good strategy you've got there. I guess my question was, when it comes to the regulator, 
Um, how easy was it to work alongside them? And were there any changes that you would have liked to see from them too? Um, so I think, you know, my background is working within financial services all my life. I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, auditing banks and the regulators. Um, and then I was a special advisor for the government as well on finance. Um, so regulators are... It's, it's a relationship thing. You know, you just got to understand where they're coming from and just kind of preempt things just to make things faster. Um, so we had the luxury of having that knowledge. So we were very prepared um, when we're, you know, doing our um, sort of licensing process. Um, and, you know, regulators everywhere is challenging. You know, they've got to, at the same time, you know, they've got to approve certain things. And if they approve it to the wrong people, you know, they get in trouble. So we just kind of try to understand that and appreciate that and, and make sure we tick every single box twice over. Um, and I think that really helped us just being like super prepared and preempting what they would do. Um, but apart from that, you know, there are things we want to do, you know, for example, you know, we want to participate in cryptocurrency. Um, it's a bit difficult because, you know, regulation isn't very clear. Um, we don't we don't know if government, you know, like it or don't like it. So it's a bit of a gray area. And we don't obviously want to fall foul of, um, you know, any, you know, we want to be on the good side of regulation always. Um, so there are some sort of, you know, hindrances, um, but, you know, it, it's it's something we need to sort of just try and try and get over and understand better. Absolutely. Babs, I, I think we've all said it, but thank you very much for, for doing what you're doing and, and keep at it, man. Um, I'm going to have to take us to the uh, ad break. So we're just going to take a quick pause while we hear from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails with external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll in just a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero and makes all of the payments reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based core connected tools that offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, Explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. Did you know we really quite enjoy making podcasts here at 11FS, and this is far from our only one? If you have not checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then you're missing out, because we published some of our best ever shows in the past few months, from the future of work to the biggest industry insurance news. Uh, there's a topic in there for everyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of what's happening in insurance. Head to ii. Dot 11fs.com. Start listening or just search InsureTech Insider on your favorite podcast client. All right, let's get on with the show. Okay, that was me reading ads, and here's me reading the story so I can throw it to the guests and then uh, let them other voices take over for a little while. Uh, HSBC is apparently going to launch a TransferWise rival. Um, so it's taking on the likes of TransferWise and Revolut with the launch of Global Money Account, a free mobile-based service that customers can use to hold, manage, and send funds in various currencies to HSBC customers in over 20 markets in real time without incurring any fees. Global Money Account is launching in the US first and will be rolled out to other markets in 2021. Uh, HSBC intends ultimately to extend the payment service to allow instant international transfers to customers with other banks too. Um, Carolyn Cristicello, who's the head of digital payments and wealth for personal banking at HSBC USA, says the ambition for Global Money is to provide our customers with one global account for all of their financial needs so that they can move from one market to another. They don't need to open a new account. They just take their existing one with them. Uh, already, uh, Adam, what are your thoughts when you look at this? Um, well, I mean, international payments, I think for a, for a long time, 
well, international payments facilitated by the banks anyway, has been a significant ripoff. I think um, if you not not just from uh, the actual rate that's being charged, but for the additional fees that that is then leveraged on top of that. Um, and I think what you've seen is the transferwise effect. I remember I was working for an international payments division within a bank, um, so I know I know I know exactly how much they're charging you. Um, so I can say this with some confidence. Um, and I think four or five years ago, even though the volumes that transferwise were, um, were were doing were slightly scaring the banks, um, it wasn't enough to to change, I guess, practices on what was an incredible cash cow for them, um, because people almost didn't know better. And I think now it's become um, um, such almost a table stake type uh, piece of functionality for a lot of fintechs in terms of you know the the, the cheaper uh, the cheaper transfer of you know of money abroad that obviously HSBC have had to act and to be honest I quite like this I think it's a bit late but I quite like it they're using their size and their scale for, for good effect so the model you would assume is literally based on the transfer wise model where you're basically just managing floats in different accounts in twenty different markets. Um, which I think makes complete sense, obviously, because their customer numbers and their scale can uh, can make that actually a viable business model. And also what it does, if they then extend it to business banks and small businesses, is give it another, uh, I guess, you could almost have this as a loss leader, which would then attract, you know, certain businesses to be able to, you know, uh, I guess, you know, interact with global plays and, and and start actually using HSBC worldwide rather than just in their um, in their own country. Um, I would like to see what the FX conversion rates are on some of the currencies, but obviously we won't know that yet. And that's when you get into the fine print and the detail to see if where, where the cost is yeah, being hidden. It's fee free, uh, but is it spread free? Exactly. That's always, um, that's always the the thing. That's that's where the hidden. This is what TransferWise's whole thing about hidden fees was about, wasn't it, Adam? And you know, TransferWise were the innovators, I think, of the borderless account. And I know several other banks have had goes at, at doing this sort of thing so you know it, on one uh, level maybe it's a sign that competition is good for consumers and you know the the, the banks stepping up and doing their pieces is, is really really good but on the other side those those fat revenue lines and increasing costs mean that you got to find revenue from somewhere and you're going to be really really efficient to, to kind of make that work um Rune, what are your thoughts I think it's uh, it's it's an important step, but the really interesting uh, part of it will be when the banks open uh, within within each other. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, I'm excited to to look into the next step. When you look at the Nordic countries, for example, uh, we need the interoperability. Uh, asking customers in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, they are disappointed not to be sending money easy and at very low cost uh, in the Nordic countries. And it, it should have been the norm for the whole Europe that you can send money easily from account to account. And uh, the banks should provide that. Mm. Isn't it interesting how um, it's been probably nearly more than two decades that sending an email has been near instant, near free, and yet sending money seems to be so much more expensive. And don't get me wrong, the consequences of sending money to the wrong email address are probably a lot higher. Therefore, there probably should be some sort of network and or uh, way of dealing with that. But it's it's still uh, it's still light years apart. Uh, Sharon, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, I guess I have two different ones. One is, okay, fine, you're getting into, you know, an, an area that you're seeing other sort of financial technology companies coming up, and that's great. And I've seen that with JP Morgan as well, just a couple of weeks ago, um, got into the whole payment space too, with their own version of, I think it's Square, is who they were competing with. Um, and now you have the same thing with another giant coming into the remittance space. Uh, what do I, I think about that? I think, yeah, as Adam said before, you've got to wait for the fine print. Um, yes, JP Morgan, quick access. That's the one. Oh, thank you for that, Simon. Um, and I think with this one, you've got to read the fine print. You know, I'll, I'll wait and see what the reviews say. And then that's my second point, which is, the reviews of these remittance companies. Now, we've had a lot of comments on whether we're writing a Western Union piece, a TransferWise piece, or MoneyGram. It's flooded with people saying, I got ripped off. This wasn't what they said it was. I read the terms, and why is it that I'm paying this much? I'm just trying to send money. Like A lot of people do feel quite hurt from these hidden costs. So if HSBC is just going to give you what it says right now and is the honest truth that it's, it's going to be fee-free, then great. But otherwise, eh, 
but also remittance is, is it's a strong game to play, right? Like it's doing so well. Absolutely. I think Sharon, what you're what I'm hearing in your voice is like a bit of like, okay, this would be cool, but I don't quite trust you because there's been so many hidden fees for so many years. Yes. That's yes. that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> this, like I wanna believe you, this looks interesting, but also I was burnt I came here yesterday and I got burnt. So uh, yeah, I, I totally, totally get that. Um but there's this interesting thing where banks are like copying a fintech five years later, at which point getting market share is a lot harder when a market is big than when a market is small. And buying back in costs a lot more money than uh, really sort of scaling experiments. And there's this giant gap between like a bank's lab where it can do interesting things, but never quite makes it live. And buying back in five years later, whereas startups are in this position where they execute kind of all the way through because otherwise the the lights go out and nobody's salaries get paid. Uh, Babs, I'm interested in in your perspective on that. Obviously, remittance is near and dear to your heart with what you've done at CUDA. Uh, What are your thoughts? Um, Yeah, so I I think you you touched on it. Um, For me, I strongly believe that, you know, banks have everything required to sort of to dominate completely. Um, fintechs should have no business even, you know, existing um, because the banks, the traditional banks have all the resources, all the sort of know-how, the market, everything. However, the biggest thing that they don't have is, I believe, sort of the mindset. You know, banks are extremely capitalist-driven um, not to say fintechs are not, but, you know, it's more a case of, you know, customers first, and then how do we make money um, afterwards? So it's, if you, if you serve the customer truly, if you're truly thinking of the customer, um, I believe that you will always find a way to make money. But if you, if you run the, the capitalist sort of mindset, you know, at some point, you know, the customer is going to be upset, is going to get angry, is going to look for alternative. And as soon as there's an alternative, you know, you're going to see them going in droves. So it's interesting that HSBC should do this. I think, look, if they do it properly, if they do it with the right mindset and it's and it's sincere, it can be very successful. Um mm. But, and let's hope know. it is, Babs, because um, the HSBC has a lot of customers and a brand and lots of markets. So, you know, if they can pull this off, this would be really, really something to see. And I'm sure the team there has has really worked to make this genuinely. So um, hopefully we see more of it. But I think, um, Adam, you just had one last point before we move on, on like the psychology of it that Babs was sort of talking about there. Yeah, I mean, again, I remember back from my experience and working specifically in this space, and, and I used to call it pr- profitable inertia. It was kind of, um, there was a um, a lack or a, um, just, just no willingness to change the status quo when the status quo was just immensely profitable. Um, and I'm, I must say, I am uh, interested in uh, what the repercussions of doing this type of transaction would be on the international payments division at HSBC, um, you know, will actually this uh, necessitate a change potentially in terms of staff numbers, um, how they operate, and then you know, consequence to that actually, would they then um, possibly not because you know the model might not work, but would they then actually extend this um, this service to non HSBC customers as well? And that's really where you start seeing the economics potentially um, get muddled a little bit. Yeah, they they did share that that's their intent, isn't it? Oh, right. to, okay. um, to, to to try and open it up to non HSBC customers. So you know, credit to them if they can get it done. And that um, culture each strategy, I think, is the is the absolute key here. And there's um, banks. To, I don't know if it's because of their shareholders or because they've been yield stocks, but it only seemed to bet on business cases that show an in-year return, whereas actually that you need a more balanced portfolio, you need a more diversified risk. And they're, okay, innovation theater and smaller things, but sort of staying on something that might not pay you back for five years seems like a, a very hard thing for a bank to do and a very easy thing for a startup to do because of how they're funded, because of what their board's looking for. And because honestly, I think a lot of the shareholders of banks are looking at them to be a yield stock. So you know, it, I, I wouldn't envy being a bank CEO trying to change this stuff, but um, I think it's uh, it, maybe it can be done and maybe this is the type of thing that we can point out in a couple of years time with success i'm going to move us to the next story um story comes from finextra 
Apparently, cash payments plummet to just 4% of transactions in Norway as central bank has started to weigh up their options. Um, So declining cash usage is often cited as the primary reason for the development of central bank backed digital currencies. But the Norwegian central bank is in no rush to introduce a digital krona, preferring to take a slow and measured approach to look at the consequences. A much more pressing issue is the push to realize the benefits of real-time payments. While instant payments are commonplace in the retail consumer segment, thanks to bank-backed mobile payment apps, VIPs, which you may have heard of, um, they have yet to take hold in the business-to-business marketplace. To this end, uh, the central bank is considering expanding its role as a payment system operator to directly settle payments in Norges banks. Um, Bruno, let's come to you first on this. Um, what is your perspective on the decline of cash, and what can you tell us about instant payments um, for uh, you know, and its role in the pandemic? First of all, I have to say that COVID-19 has accelerated trends much faster than uh, we could have predicted. And uh, why is the cash decline uh, this high in Norway? There are many reasons to that uh, in addition to COVID. Uh, but the Norwegian society is uh, highly digitalized. And in uh, the banks have invested uh, highly in uh, consumer-friendly digital solutions. And then we launched VIPS, uh, the Norwegian mobile wallet, in 2015. And uh, almost everybody in Norway is using this wallet. Uh, it is, uh, I can say that 80% are using the wallet every every week. And uh, VIPS payment is available in every payment situation now, from P2P payment to invoices, uh, to e-com, sports and clubs, and so on. So... Uh, you can pay with VIPs almost everywhere. Uh, in uh, three or four months, I think I can say that you can use VIPs in 100% of the payment situations. So this has actually uh, just uh, declined uh, the use of cash very fast. Uh, one year ago, I think uh, 9% used cash in Norway. Uh, today, it's about 3 to 4%. and. Uh, it's head- heading fast to zero. Uh, the reason to that is, of course, the simplicity of digital payments. And if you look at VIPs as uh, a mobile wallet, it also ha- have a high penetration uh, in the elderly segments in 70s, in the segments 60 to 70, for example. They also uses uh, the new digital payment methods. So that is probably the answer to why the cash is actually getting removed in the Norwegian society. Uh, it's massive, isn't it? And that B2B space um, is increasingly coming. If it's accepted everywhere and everybody's using the thing and 80% of people are doing it, it looks very different to the US where Square and Venmo are slowly taking off and you've got Zelle as well, or in the UK where you know we'd like to uh, beat our chest and be very happy with our faster payments infrastructure, but peer-to-peer payments just doesn't nearly look as slick as it would in the, in the Scandinavian region. Um, Sharon, I'm interested in your thoughts as as you look at this story. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had quite a lot of people who've um, gone on our podcast, the What the Fintech podcast, and, and they spoke about how they are seeing a decline of cash usage. However, it is affecting a lot of the elderly community, um, and there's still about 20% of people who need cash in the UK. And I think that was according to a link report that came out, um, just looking at the ATM cash machine network usage. Um, For me personally, so I have a a story about cash usage, and that is my laundry, okay? It's annoying. i got to do it. The laundry machine's there. got to put coins in them, okay? (laughs) So when it went cashless, and I was going from shop to shop, um, asking people during, like, the peak of coronavirus, oh, um, can you just, like, exchange this £20 note for, like, you know, pound coins? They're like, sorry, we're not doing that anymore. Like cash is gross and scary to us now. <laughs> and I had to go to my bank to, to do it, which luckily they still had some coins left over because some other bank branches didn't and some other bank branches have completely closed or turned fully digital. And that's, I'm sure, a story for another day. But I think people still do rely on cash heavily and there's still loads of different infrastructure points that need to be taken into consideration. So yes, I do want to do my laundry. It would be great if I could tap it is anyone out there with uh, some startup seed money for me <laughs> coming up with my <laughs> fun, sh- fun Sharon's laundry? <laughs> yes. 
fund my laundry and I can do it by phone. So give me a, a smart laundry machine, please. Anyone out there? Rune, you wanted to jump back in briefly. No, I, I think this is interesting because, of course, there are some payment situations that are more difficult to solve the digital solutions. But I, I when we have seen the development uh, with QR codes, for example, uh, the last few months, uh, the growth has been tremendous. Uh, and uh, we are using the QR codes for sports and clubs and so on. Uh, cash is totally out of the pictures for sports and clubs. So when you're having a sports event, they are all using mobile payment. Uh, so, so this is this is really growing in every situation. I don't know if a QR code is uh, the answer for laundry, as uh, Shannon mentioned, but uh, <laughs> there, there there are there are some possibilities now to remove uh, the cash use uh, very very fast. So, this is interesting to see in in Norway, and, and uh, people just don't want. To have the cash. I talked to a 16-year-old uh, Vips user the other day. When her mother offered her cash, she just declined and said, no, you have to send me the money on, uh, <laughs> on, on Vips. So she didn't indeed, want those, indeed. Uh, those. Yeah. I think that that generational shift is is huge, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm interested, Babs, in your perspective, especially from from Nigeria. Like, um, I guess displacing cash is is probably earlier in the journey. But what do you think the consumer attitude is like? Building on what Maroon just said. Um, so, I mean, Nigeria is big, um, and I think in terms of yeah, it, it, for Scandinavia, I mean, I, I I'm not sure, but I, I'm assuming the size or relative small size helps it in terms of making sure sort of, you know, um, uh, money is digitized. It's a lot easier to do it when, you know, it, it's not as big because there's a lot of infrastructure um, to build. There's a lot of, you know, sensitization, um, you know, so it's a lot harder in a place like Nigeria um, to give perspective. We have sort of, you know, about 200 sort of different languages, dialects, you know, um, but cash is a, you know, it's one language. Everybody understands it, you know. So there are, there are lots of nuances um, that make it, you know, a bit more of a challenge to completely displace cash. Um, and also, you know, in terms of, I don't know what the cost is like in, in Scandinavia for sort of non-cash. Um, if, if you do get charged for sort of, using you know digitizing you know or payments or whatever but you know in in emerging market in nigeria that's also an issue there's a cost issue cash is actually for for consumers cash is actually cheaper um for them wow. to yeah for them to use you know um and this so, can take some policy changes sometimes to to really deal with because from a business side it, it's it's expensive but from a consumer side it's ideal adam any last thoughts before we move to the next story on this one i was just going to say I, th I guess from a, a macroeconomic perspective um if you haven't read or listeners haven't read uh and they're based in the uk the the uk central bank a digital currency discussion paper released in march this year super interesting um, um, basically, what it what it uh, what it leads you to think about is the the economic and the social consequences of a digital currency, which is amazing. Um, and there's one there's one scenario where you know if there's a central bank which issues a digital currency and also does the depositing for it as well, um, and cash, you know, as it has been reducing, it's down to now I think 28% in the UK. Uh, actually, it's probably less now. That this was back in 2018, but it's now been reduced to the, the second um, highest. Uh, a mode of transactions behind um, a debit card, uh, and the really interesting thing is if um, if this does catch on, the banks, as in the commercial banks, wouldn't necessarily hold those deposits, and then what happens? The, the commercial banks might not be able to lend because obviously their you know lending deposit ratios go you know all over the place, and suddenly actually you've got then the central bank directly uh, lending money, which is just you know you know it sort of blows yeah, your mind I, a bit. But I, but I think in that paper though they did say that the the likelihood of them doing that in narrow banking is extremely rare oh, but the sorry, possibilities I, I believe it. Like there's no way the commercial banks are getting cut out of this process if it happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I but, but, but also paper, you, you would limit money money supply and now we're massively nerding out about the nature of money supply and this is when <laughs> you know you're in fintech insider. Um but also you know you're in fintech insider when I've got to move us to the next story and uh this is this is an absolute 
absolute um, belter of a story. Um, this is the U.S. Department of Justice is challenging Visa's $5.3 billion acquisition of Plaid. The DOJ ain't playing. Um, so the DOJ said that by acquiring Plaid, Visa would eliminate a nascent competitive threat that would likely result in substantial savings and more innovative online debit services for merchants and consumers, the DOJ said in a lawsuit. Visa strongly deny these claims, saying the DOJ just don't understand Plaid's business or the payment landscape in general. Um, as we explained to the DOJ, Visa said, uh, Plaid is not a payments company. Visa's business faces intense competition from a variety of players, but Plaid is not one of them. The combination of Visa and Plaid will deliver substantial benefits for consumers seeking access to a broader range of financial services. The DOJ lawyers pointed to MasterCard's inability to seize more than a quarter of the online debit market as a sign of Visa's continued dominance. Um, Rune, I guess you're um, close to pretty close to payments. I'm going to start with you. What, what were your thoughts when you saw this? I think it's uh, difficult actually to uh, to have a strong opinion of uh, whether or not uh, this um, should be allowed. But uh, the fintech space, uh, payment space, is increasingly competitive, and we we see more and more acquisitions, partnership, and repositioning. Uh, many players want to take a larger or a new part of the value chain, and especially ownership to data is an attractive area, and it's. Uh, it's hard to make uh, money on transaction alone. And uh, you, we are competing against, uh, in the payment sector, brands who actually are the best in the world to create value of data. Uh, it's, it's claimed that Plaid's biggest rank is obtaining explicit, explicit permission from consumers to, to use their data, which is important to te- keep the consumers trust. And I, I don't... I, I don't. I'm not in a position actually to say whether or not that is uh, that is the case. Mm, interesting, um, Sharon. I'm interested if you saw the this image that's been going around of the uh, of the volcano uh, picture um, that I think comes from the DOJ's deposition in which. Um, Apparently, uh, Plaid was uh, posed, posed, did pose a threat to Visa's debit business, um, with one of the staffers at Visa apparently saying, I don't want to be IBM to their Microsoft. Um, they drew a picture of an island volcano whose current capabilities are just above the water, but they could develop um, payments later in this in this picture. Uh, do you think that uh, that's, is that a reach by the DOJ, or do you think that um, you know this is something that uh, has has real Plaid had real potential to do what we're seeing with account to account payments in Europe? Oh yeah, I have seen that. Um, I don't know what to make of this one because, in one respect, I want to say that oh wow, they're making interesting moves when it comes to antitrust. They're actually going to talk about you know monopolies, but that really wasn't the crux of this. Um, because they were just saying that, oh, it's legally flawed or like it's going to stifle innovation and increase costs or whatever. But they didn't at any point say, and it's going to create this giant monopoly. Um, so some people started online uh, commenting that it might look very similar to the trajectory the Microsoft case was in. And at the time, that was with a Democrat um, attorney general, so Janet Reno. And they actually did go after Microsoft and they wanted to break them up. Um, because of their behavior. I think at the time it was with Intel and a couple of other third service, uh, third party providers. Um, so it's kind of looking that way. But then all of a sudden, when it wasn't the Democrats in charge and it was back to the Republicans uh, and it was with, oh God, who, who's that guy? Yeah, John Ashcroft. They settled. They settled the case. So it just looks like it's going away of, oh wow, we might actually make a change here that they're coming for, for these big guys and maybe break them up. And then it just sort of falls flat. So well, it's knows? typical I, of I the US, like isn't it? That it, um, is. it, it depends on the depends on the flavor that's um, of the week as to what actually happens with these cases, and these cases take a long time to to kind of get there. Um, I'm interested, um, Babs, as you sit back and watching this. Um, you know, there's there's the uh, always been the question of what's the plaid for Africa and 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 this sort of thing, and and do you really need something along those lines there? But um, plaid in the US um, is is a really interesting position versus um, markets where you have open banking and markets where you don't. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is I'm not actually sure where the antitrust is. I mean, it, it's it, does it add value to to the eventually to the consumer? If the answer is yes. Um, 
I mean, I'm just struggling to see why it, it's an issue, to be honest. Um, but in, in terms of sort of looking at it, taking it to sort of the plan of another region, um, I think it's, it's, it's something that is very, very needed in emerging market, especially, you know, there's a, there's a growing sort of app industry um, in emerging market. And still, it's still very difficult because banks are very closed in. It's, banks are almost like um, still owner managed, you know, you still have sort of the first, you can still see the first generation owner, you know, and, and, and it's treated like, like a, a family business still. So open banking is not as strong. And, you know, because of competition, there's a lot of distrust, you know, among sort of other financial institutions. So, you know, an independent, independent sort of um, company um, that tries to bring everybody together that's not competing um, will work, you know, tremendously. Um, so, so yeah, I think we need we we need a plaid in emerging market for sure. Absolutely, um, I'm I'm interested, Adam, in your views here as as I look at this um, plaid before its acquisition by Visa, if I'm one of the banks, looks quite hostile because it's coming in, it's taking the data on my customers and uh, you know, you're not really in control of it. Maybe you're being commoditized. Um, is this potentially more about the bank's perspective of Plaid and its then ability to, to you know, kind of really disintermediate them um, and Visa being sort of a, a piece of bank infrastructure and very close to the banks? Do you think there's, there's something uh, there? Uh, well, I mean, w- w- so I mean, we're using Plaid at the moment for a proposition we're building. And, um, you know, I, I read this, I saw Visa um, say that Plaid uh, or Visa faces intense competition for a variety of players, but Plaid isn't one of them. Um, I mean, I'm using Plaid for payments, so I would suggest the opposite. Um, although we're very friendly with Plaid and we're very friendly with Visa, so I don't want to say too much, you know, to get me in, into trouble. Um, I, I think for me, uh, it, 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 there could be an element of... Uh, of some form of influence that's led to this sort of behind the scenes. I wouldn't necessarily say it was the banks, probably. I would say it's probably more sort of some of the other schemes. Um, It's a very expensive way to get into sort of A2A payments. And, you know, make no mistake from what I've seen anyway, what we've seen, you know, Plaid is going to go there um, and it will take off. You know, you've only just seen uh, open bankings, you know, sort of in the UK anyway, is now um, mobilizing to sort of make, that payment journey slicker and in the states although it's based on dda so direct data agreements between two parties in order to get you know the data out of you know sort of one bank to another bank etc and it's really clunky and horrible ultimately the actual process so the date you know the end-to-end points actually work um and yeah. you know and there's a lot of propositions based on plaid so i would suggest it's it's possibly the other schemes teaming up dare i say it, um yeah. uh, to, to try and put focus on this i, I, I did thought. see this and think you know mastercard have got to think this is a, a lovely outcome because they've obviously acquired quite a bit in the real-time payment space the uh, acquirer of Vocalink who runs some of the faster payments rails around the world and and, and I think actually um, I I see both of the schemes really looking at becoming multi-rail and sort of saying well if if payment transactions are are going away then how how do we start to get more of a play in data and both Visa and MasterCard do quite a lot with data already and then having a um, a plaid potentially allows you to do that so it's going to be interesting to watch um, what happens next with that account-to-account payment space, as you say, Adam, which in Europe is is really, really big um, and slowly coming up. But in, in the US, that account-to-account payment space is just dwarfed by, by cards acquiring. So I'm going to move us uh, on because we are coming to the end of the show just to round out some of the stories from the rest of the week that we didn't have time to cover, but we thought deserved a bit of a shout out. So Adam, do you want to start us off with the first one? Oh, okay. Yes. Um, Google app enables banks to lock Android devices over credit defaults. Um, So this is an article in Finextra. Google has released an app that enables banks and credit providers to remotely lock a mobile phone if the user fails to make installment payments. With the device locked, users are are able to access a limited uh, number of restricted functions such as emergency calls, incoming and select outgoing calls, settings and backup and restore service. A spokesperson from Google said the app was developed to help Kenyan mobile carrier Safaricom with its new financing plan, which lets customers get an Android Go device with 
financing. Um, I had to double take on this story. I'm not going to lie when I first read it. Um, I think uh, from my perspective, I guess it's better than the Bayleafs coming around. I mean, you know, it's sort of, um, and, and I suppose it's all linked because, you know, ultimately you're getting financing to get the phone. Um, but it does seem a little bit, uh, a little bit harsh because, you know, you might actually need your phone to, you know, to, to, to perform some of the tasks that you need to be able to afford the instalment. So it's kind of, it seems like a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, but I don't know, is it better than, you know, just loading the, the consumer up with, with more debt and higher, you know, higher levels of interest? Possibly. Indeed, Adam, there could be a lot of uh, unintended consequences of this API. Um, and another story we didn't have time to cover is Digital Bank 10th targets Black America. 10th, who describe themselves as unapologetically Black, Digital Neobank is gearing up for a launch with a mission of eradicating the wealth gap for Black America. 10th is co-founded by Ayesa Bradley, who previously worked at fintechs such as Sela Money, Socure Synapse, and Donald Hawkins, who was the founder of Griffin Technologies. Uh, the waitlist is is now open for a planned fourth quarter launch and 10th is promising an app that lets users uh, set savings goals, track expenses, uh, get access to financial education and access to insurance, wealth management and other services via a marketplace. Users can also support historically black colleges and universities via a roundup feature. Um, I, I love that in this headline, uh, the word black is capitalized. I saw a great piece in the New York Times there about um, black as a culture um, and, and actually this um, sort of building a brand for a culture feels really really insightful um and uh important so um you know I, I feel well out of my depth commenting on this one given i i do have two um two friends from the african diaspora uh on on the phone uh, on, on the line with us but i just hope we see a lot lot more of this yeah there's one actually in the uk at men bank it's coming up we wrote a story about it our reporter ruby hinchliff she uh, spoke to the ceo um and he's essentially seeing a market for it in the uk because there isn't one so you know sign up everyone at men bank <laughs> but yeah great shout sharon thank you so much and uh adam do you want to cover the next story we didn't have time to cover yeah i will do uh, uk challenger bank tsb partners with wealthify to launch an investment program this is from crowdfund insider um this is the news that tsb is going to do a partnership with wealthify uh, so they can uh, so customers of tsb can start investing in general account investment ices junior ices and so on and so forth um i must say uh, i couldn't quite believe that tsb didn't have any investment services when i first read this but then i sort of dipped my digging in it it, it appears to be true. Um, it, this feels very much like a, and I think it is just a, a straight up referral deal. And then I think there's a split 50-50 on sort of the revenues which are then generated from it. Um, it feels like an MVP for something which might then, you know, grow into something a lot more integrated. So I'd probably say on this one, watch this space. It's going to be interesting to see if um, banks start to see um, the patchwork quilt of fintechs who can go into markets that they couldn't and mm. uh, and start to um, start to really drive new revenue for them with partnerships. So uh, interesting trend to watch. Uh, our and finally story this week. Uh, apparently, Klarna got sued by Pablo Escobar's brother. Um, so Escobar Inc. was set up by Pablo Escobar's brother, Roberto Escobar, and run by uh, Swede Olaf Gustafsson. Uh, and they're claiming that Klarna is unfairly withholding 400,000 euros owed to them for a thousand flashy Escobar branded phones sold through Klarna's platform. Um, Gustafsson is confident of winning and is prepared to delay the um, planned IPO due to the court case. Um, uh, so Klarna says that they were withholding the money as they believe that the phones sold from Escobar Inc. were never actually delivered to customers, um, so the money should be refunded. Uh, according to the media, the phones sold by the company are actually just um, FlexPi, Samsung Galaxy Fold 2, and iPhone 11 covered covered in a thin layer of gold stickers. Um, so yeah, $400,000 for taking um, iPhone cases. Anybody got thoughts on this one? <laughs> don't really know where to start to be honest um <laughs> i i mean i don't really know what to say to be honest it's uh it's, it's a bit of a crazy one um I, th I suppose confident to delay the planned ipo due to the court case is probably quite bold yeah clon escobar um i'm starting to oh. think of like you know if there was gonna be like a watergate scandal or like the the brangelina version of this headline I, that was the thing that immediately came to my mind um sharon what are your thoughts I was thinking, but surely if their phones are fraudulent, and I've seen quite a lot of people on YouTube sort of carry them with them and, and, and say, hey, look, it's just a Samsung, by the way. Surely if that's just a case of fraud, then he has like nothing to offer. Like there's, there's nothing you can work with there. You know, I just think it's, he's a very eccentric man. 
And I think he just wants to get his name out. So that, that's my thought on that. Yeah, Klarna just appear to have done their job and managed a risk here. Um, Babs, um, what are your thoughts? Do you love a bit of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, it It seems, yeah, as, as Sharon said, a bit of a publicity stunt. Um, because, I, I mean, the first time I read it, I was like, I thought it was, you know, one of those scam, not, well, scam, but one of those fake stories. You know, I didn't think it was a real story. You know, well, given the outlet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just very strange. I mean, I I really don't know what to make of it, to be honest. Uh, hard to say. Uh, Rune, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, I think the message Klarna took in this case was in their customers' best interests, which is which is uh, also a positive message. So, uh, you know, trust is the main driver for payments. Uh, however, I think Klarna will they won't lose any trust following this case. They, uh, Good stuff. Yeah, yeah very sensible. They stand. Very well they stand on their customer side. So. Uh, absolutely well that was a fun one um, and that wraps up this week's show uh, thank you so much to all of our guests uh, where can people find out more about you and what you do Babs um, I'm on kudabank.com um, well that's my company um, but you can find you can find you know me personally on Instagram Babs Ogunday on Twitter Babs Ogunday um and on linkedin babs ogunde um but i'd rather you found kudabank.com i like this <laughs> or download the Kuda app <laughs> yes absolutely uh, how about you sharon you can find me at fintech kits that's fintech and then k-i-t-s like football kits like you just want multiple football kits with your fintech um you can also find me at fintechfutures.com please do check out our website. We are more interesting than Finextra. I will say that now. I will hold <laughs> my head up on that. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, shots oh, fired. Shot I, I, fired. I, I can see, <laughs> I, I can see a, a Fintech Insider After Dark coming up of like Battle of the Journal outlets here. Like, Let's get Ali yes. Patterson coming out swinging and let's, let's do all of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm willing to to hash it out. You can find me also at What the FinTech Podcast. You can come on. We can dix it out. <laughs> Let's do um, it. I think that sounds like uh, not just a threat but a promise. I'm I'm all for this. <laughs> it's like a, one of those rap battles, if you will. Come for Let's, me at this time. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's definitely do it. One of the best shows we ever did was was almost exactly that, but with fintech. So let's do it. Uh, Rune, how about uh, how about you? Where can we find you? I think LinkedIn is the easiest way. So you can just find uh, Vips on LinkedIn and and uh, and me as well. So I will happy to be happy to hear from you. Thank you so much, Rune and Adam. Uh, yeah, LinkedIn, Adam Davis, Adam D8 uh, on Twitter, and then 11fs.com, of course. And as for me, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter, uh, Simon Taylor on LinkedIn, or just 11fs.com, of course. Yes, indeedy. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and it helps others find the show. Uh, do pass on the pod. Tell your friends about it. Tell everybody that loves fintech. We are the Fintech Insiders and we are fintech nerds. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11fs or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very, very much. Goodbye for now.